It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Welcome to ParCast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal con artists episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the ParCast network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular ParCast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes of these for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing those rare and thrilling instances where the victim of a horrid crime escaped the clutches of a sinister oppressor. When faced with death, how do victims of serial killers, cults, or obsessed stalkers break free? How did these dark experiences affect the psychology of the people who suffered through them? When a person is taken captive, either in a kidnapping or as a hostage, only one thought enters their mind, survival. But what different tactics can we use to make it through to the other side? In some cases, a person being held captive might be able to figuratively escape, retreating into their mind and imagining themselves in a different set of circumstances. While this strategy may help minimize trauma in the moment, Dr. Tina J. Walsh of Zucker Hillside Hospital suggested that victims may face long-term consequences from such tactics, like depression, PTSD, or dissociative disorder. In other situations of captivity, a victim may be able to physically escape from their aggressor, but it can take years for the right opening to appear. And sometimes, by the time one arrives, the victim is too mentally defeated to recognize it or capitalize on the opportunity. Dr. Walsh explained that victims may develop learned helplessness, which is the feeling of being powerless in the face of continued attacks. Many times, this forced confinement has a psychological impact that follows a victim long after their escape, and it can manifest itself in many different ways. According to Carol Wilson, director of the York-Pocosin Victim Witness Assistance Program, 
Some of these effects include numbness, denial, flashbacks, trouble sleeping, and self-blame. Some victims even develop post-traumatic stress disorder, which the American Psychiatric Association characterizes as intrusive thoughts, resistance to talking about the trauma, and distressing dreams that last for at least a month following the traumatic experience. In our clips today, we'll discuss the ways in which our victims heroically escaped, as well as the psychological effects that followed them after their liberation. Our first clip is from ParCast original Female Criminals, covering the attempted murder of one of the most well-known American artists of the 20th century, Andy Warhol. Writer and radical feminist Valerie Solanas befriended Warhol in 1967 through the New York avant-garde art scene. He showed an interest in producing one of her plays, titled Up Your Ass, and invited her into his inner circle of artists and influencers at The Factory. But in 1968, the pair had a falling out. Valerie became convinced that Warhol was trying to steal her ideas and pass them off as his own. In a paranoia-fueled rage, she confronted Warhol in his studio, armed with a 32 caliber revolver. She pulled out her gun, aimed it at Warhol's back while he was on the phone, and fired before anyone could stop her. When the first shot went off, no one in the studio realized what was happening. Amaya thought a sniper had fired through the window. He threw himself on the ground. Hughes, on the other hand, thought the sound was an explosion from the offices of the Communist Party, located two floors above them. Warhol was the only one who realized what was happening. Though her first shot had missed him, he turned at the sound, and when he saw Valerie was holding a smoking gun, he yelled, Valerie, don't do it, no, no. But his words couldn't deter her. Valerie wasn't a skilled marksman. Her second shot also missed. However, the third bullet struck Warhol in the abdomen, hitting his left lung, spleen, stomach, liver, and esophagus before exiting his back. He collapsed to the ground, at which point Valerie turned to Amaya. He was the only bystander who hadn't taken cover, making him a perfect target for Valerie. She fired twice more. One shot hit, but miraculously passed through Amaya without damaging any organs. Valerie then approached Hughes, pointing the gun directly at him. He begged for his life, but Valerie told him simply, I have to shoot you. She aimed the gun at his chest. At such a close range, it was impossible for her to miss. But fate intervened. The gun jammed, and as she tried to get it working again, the elevator doors opened. Hughes, realizing that Valerie was distracted and agitated, told her to just take the elevator and leave. Valerie did exactly that. Morrissey and Hughes immediately called 911. When the paramedics arrived and saw the blood, they believed that Warhol was already dead. No one could have survived the injuries he'd sustained. Amaya had to convince them that Warhol was still breathing and that he needed immediate medical treatment. 
Finally, the first responders loaded Warhol into their ambulance. At the hospital, his heart stopped at 4.51 p.m. The doctors declared him legally dead, but they were able to resuscitate him by massaging his heart and rushed him into emergency surgery. Following that clip from Female Criminals, Valerie Solanas turned herself in shortly after shooting Warhol, thinking she had killed him. She told the officer that Warhol, quote, had too much control over my life. Though Warhol's injuries were grave, he and art critic Mario Amaya both survived the shooting. The effects of the attack, however, followed Warhol for the rest of his life, both physically and emotionally. He had to wear a surgical corset to hold his organs in place. Psychologically, Warhol developed a terrible phobia of hospitals, so much so that he avoided a needed gallbladder surgery for years. When he finally got the surgery in 1987, he went into cardiac arrest and died. The rest of Warhol's life and art was indelibly defined by a few moments in his life, the time it took for Valerie to unload her 32 caliber revolver. But our next clip from Crimes of Passion follows the victims of a prolonged attack and forced captivity. Mary Stauffer and her daughter Elizabeth were victims of a possessive and paranoid criminal and were held captive for nearly two months. While attending high school in the 1960s, Ming Sen Shu developed obsessive sexual fantasies about his algebra teacher, Mary Stauffer. These fantasies finally manifested in 1980, when after stalking Mary for years, Shu kidnapped her and her eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. He locked mother and daughter in a bedroom closet, only letting Mary out to sexually assault her. For weeks, Stauffer searched for an opportunity to escape her confinement, determined to save herself and her daughter. Mary and Beth stood silently among the throngs of people. They didn't give any sign that anything was wrong, but when Mary saw a sheriff's car parked nearby, she noted the department phone number printed above the bumper. She memorized the number. On the morning of July 7th, Mary and Beth's 53rd day of captivity, Ming told Mary that he was thinking about renting the RV again. He had inquired about long-term use, and discovered he could rent the camper for up to a year. As Mary listened to Ming talk about future trips and vacations, she was struck with the grim certainty that Ming was never, ever going to release them. She said, It had occurred to me before that, but it wasn't until that day that I despaired to the point that I said to Beth, He's never going to let us go. That afternoon, Ming went to work. He left Beth and Mary chained together inside the closet with the steel bicycle cable attached to their waist and looped around the hinge of the closet door. With Ming gone, Beth switched on the small television set that Ming had given her. Mary did not look at the television. She was staring at the hinges on the closet door. She later said, God seemed to call my attention to those hinges. Mary reached out grabbed the hinge, and pulled out the pin. She said it slid out easily like it was greased. Mary then went to work on the other hinge. Soon, the door came loose, and so did the chain 
that bound them. Mary stepped out of the closet. Beth was frightened. She said, No, Mommy, no. We have to go back in the closet. We're going to make him mad. Mary responded, Beth, this is our chance. We have to go now. Mary hurried into the kitchen, knowing that Ming might return at any moment. She recalled the number she had seen on the back of the sheriff's car. Then she grabbed the telephone and dialed. Mary told the dispatcher her name and recited the address she had memorized from the dry cleaning bag she had found on her first night trapped in Ming's closet. She also told them if they arrived and saw a black van in front of the house, that meant Ming was home. She emphasized that he was dangerous, saying, He'll kill us and anyone who tries to come in here. He has a lot of guns. Don't try to come in if he's here. After Mary hung up, Beth suggested they wait outside and hide behind the bushes. They crept out the back door, hid behind an old car in the backyard, and waited. In that clip from our Crimes of Passion episodes on Ming San Shu, Mary and Elizabeth successfully fled to freedom. Following Mary and Elizabeth's escape, she was arrested and charged with abduction, sexual assault, and the murder of a six-year-old boy who witnessed the kidnapping. Unfortunately, Mary wasn't yet free of Shu's reign of terror. When she testified against him at trial, Shu jumped up to the witness stand and slashed Mary in the face with a knife he had smuggled into the courtroom. Mary required 62 stitches, but Shu was convicted and sentenced to life in prison where he remains to this day. At his parole hearing in 2010, Elizabeth took the stand and revealed the psychological toll the kidnapping had on her, even 30 years later. She said that she still had nightmares, flashbacks, and feared for the well-being of herself and her children. After all, Shu had promised her he would kill her if he were ever released. Ming Sen Shu was practically a stranger to his victims, but what happens when you must escape from your own father? Coming up, we'll discuss Katie Morgan Davies' brave escape from her father's cult. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the show. So far, we've talked about victims who managed to escape from blitz attacks and temporary captivity. But what if you spent your entire life in the bonds of your abuser? What if that's the only world you know? Our next clip is taken from Parcast Original, Cults. The Workers' Institute was founded in 1974 by Arvindin Balakrishnan, who wanted to start a revolution in England and create a communist society similar to Mao Zedong's China. Balakrishnan's followers were all female and extremely devoted to him. During his lectures, sometimes lasting four hours, 
his followers were never allowed to sit down while he spoke. The women were also expected to do whatever Balakrishnan asked, which often included giving him massages and bringing him food. Balakrishnan impregnated one of his followers and had a daughter, who later changed her name to Katie Morgan Davies. Katie, born into the cult, was completely indoctrinated, knowing no other kind of life. She was fearful of the outside world and kept isolated by her father. However, Katie and another cult member, Josie, eventually became the reason for Balakrishnan's downfall. It wouldn't be until 2013, when Katie was 30 years old, that she'd finally start that new life. By that time, Katie had developed diabetes and was starting to suffer serious health effects as a result. Josie Harravel realized that Katie's health was deteriorating quickly. It worried her so much that Josie decided to help her get out to see a doctor. In October 2013, Josie saw a story about forced marriages on BBC News. At the end, the newsreader gave out a helpline number. Immediately, she knew that was the way she would get Katie out. Josie committed the number to memory. Then, she secretly saved up enough money to buy a cheap mobile phone, smuggled it home, and waited for the perfect moment. After years serving him, Josie had Bala's schedule down pat. She waited until Balakrishnan settled in to watch TV with Chanda, as they did every evening. The moment he did, Josie made the call on her mobile while Katie stood watch. The call took much longer than expected, as Josie was transferred again and again. If Balakrishnan were to walk down the hallway, there'd be nothing Katie could do to stop him. But eventually, Josie connected with the Palm Cove Society, a nonprofit who in turn coordinated with the Metropolitan Police. Within minutes, they came up with a plan. On October 25th, 2013, Josie and Katie had everything packed and hidden beneath their beds. They waited for Comrade Bala to turn his attention elsewhere. Finally, at 11.15 a.m., Balakrishnan left on his usual morning walk. Josie and Katie had timed their escape precisely. The second Bala had turned the corner, Josie and Katie ran from the apartment with the few belongings they had. As they got to the corner, they wondered if their plan would work or if they'd made a potentially life-ending mistake. As they turned the corner, they nearly collapsed with relief as they were met by the members of the Palm Cove Society and six plain-clothed officers, as promised. Finally, after 30 years in captivity, Katie Morgan Davies was free of the Workers' Institute. She was set up at the Palm Cove Society's halfway house and began living her life anew. In that clip from our cults episode on the Workers' Institute, Aravindan Balakrishnan was eventually convicted of sexual assault, cruelty, and false imprisonment. Katie Morgan Davies waived her right to anonymity during the proceedings so that she could retrieve the identity the cult stole from her. Yvonne Hall and Gerald Stocks, who run the Palm Cove Society, still see the effects of Katie's imprisonment as she struggles to make friends and has mobility problems. But Katie relishes even the smallest freedoms she has, such as getting a piercing or wearing bright clothing. After being hidden from the world by her father for so long, every day now brings a new discovery. 
But Katie was born into captivity. Most of the time, our victims find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, and someone else takes advantage. In our next clip from Hostage, Captain James Riley is forced to barter with a band of marauders for his and his crew's safety. Riley and his crew shipwrecked on the Moroccan coastline in 1815. Lost in the dunes, they were taken hostage by the Berber tribe, who split up the group and planned to sell them into slavery. They traveled across the desert, enduring harsh terrain that cut their feet, and a blistering sun that gave them severe sunburns. They were beaten, malnourished, and close to death. Riley nearly lost hope of survival, until he met the man who would eventually lead to his escape. One day, about three weeks into their capture, James spotted two Arabian travelers approaching the camp on Camelback. They dismounted their camels at James's master's tent and sat in front of it with their backs to it, looking out over the sands. They each took a gun and laid it in the sand beside them. Then they waited. James was intrigued. He had never seen visitors act this way before and wondered what business they had with his master. The master's wives seemed to know the men and instead of inviting them in, set up an awning over them to shade them from the sun. Then the women tended to the men's camels. Later that day, one of the two men offered James some water to drink, which he gladly accepted. Then, using pantomime, an old woman told James who the men were. They were from the capital, and if James could convince them to buy him and his companions, she said, they could return with James and allow him to pay his own ransom. At this, James felt his heart flutter. He was so weak with hunger and delirious with heat exhaustion. The idea of making it all the way to the capital seemed impossible, but he had to try. From that moment on, he bided his time, waiting for a moment when he could speak with these men alone. But that was proving a challenge, as the men were well-known within the camp and constantly surrounded. Finally, after several hours, one of the two strangers approached James and introduced himself as Sidi Hamet. James, who had been slowly picking up enough Arabic to form crude sentences, was able to communicate with Sidi Hamet just enough to barter for his own life. He offered Hamet $50, over $800 today, and $50 for each of his men, if Sidi Hamet would buy them and take them to their friends in the capital. Sidi Hamet considered this at length and spoke with the men's masters. Finally, he agreed to buy everyone but Clark, who was so blistered and broken, Sadi Hamet didn't believe he would live three days. James implored him to reconsider, offering to pay his ransom whether Clark lived or died. Finally, Sadi Hamet relented. He wouldn't take them to the capital, as it was too far, but he would take them to a port town called Sawera. James hoped he might make contact with someone at the consulate in Sawera, an ambassador or friend who could pay the hefty ransom. It wasn't a sure bet, but it was a chance he was willing to take. (laughs) 
In that clip from Hostage, James Riley and his crew managed to escape their bonds of captivity. Though they were free of the Berber slavers, they still had a long way to go until they finally reached the American consulate and regained their freedom. But this was the first huge step, and Sadi Hamet eventually guided them to safety. After James Riley returned to the States, he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. In one episode, he completely dissociated from reality and lost his memory for three days. According to psychiatrist Vedat Shar, these dissociative incidents are common in victims of PTSD. Despite his psychological trauma, Riley went on to write a bestseller based on his experiences and became an anti-slavery activist. Our final clip from Serial Killers features a bold escape from one of the most brutal serial killers in history, David Parker Ray. David Parker Ray, also known as the Toy Box Killer, kidnapped countless women for the express purpose of sexual torture. He held his victims hostage in his toy box, inflicting his sadistic fantasies for days and weeks on end. Ray is suspected of killing as many as 60 women, though no bodies were ever found, and the exact number will never be confirmed. Cynthia Vigil was abducted by Ray and his girlfriend Cindy Handy on March 19, 1999. For three days, she was raped and tortured. By chance, when Ray left to get more supplies, Vigil saw her chance to escape. Around midday, David decided to go and get supplies for the fun they had in store that night. He and Cindy made sure Vigil's chains were fastened to their posts. Then he left the home, leaving Cindy behind. Cindy mocked Vigil, then left the room to watch TV. Vigil could hear the television from the other room as she languished in pain. Then her eyes fell on the bedside table. Cindy had left the key to her locks right next to her. Vigil's heart started to pound. The keys were right there and she was confident that if she was willing to stretch, she could grab them. Vigil stretched and reached, her legs throbbing with pain as she pushed her torso, first one inch and then another. Finally, after minutes of pained reaching, her fingers touched the cold, hard metal of the key. Vigil snatched up the key and quickly unlocked her limbs. She tried to unlock the collar around her neck, but the lock was a different size. For a moment, her heart dropped, thinking the jig was up. But then she looked up. She saw the lock attaching the chain to the wall was the same size as all the others. Excitedly, she tried the key. And it worked. She was free to run. The collar still on her neck, Vigil sprinted from the room, the chain trailing behind her. When she entered the main room, she saw that Cindy Hendy was on the couch, directly blocking the exit. Cindy leaped to her feet and screamed, grabbing a lamp. Thinking quickly, Vigil looked around and saw an ice pick on the table. She grabbed the pick just as Cindy crashed the lamp against her head. The lamp cut a gash in Vigil's forehead, but Vigil steeled herself against the blow. She wasn't going back into that bedroom alive. She flew at Cindy and brought the pick directly into the back of Cindy's neck. Cindy fell to the ground, stunned by the wound. Vigil pressed forward and ran out the front door. Several neighbors saw the woman running naked down the road, clothed only in a metal dog collar. They called the police, 
and a neighboring couple even allowed Cindy to hide in their house as the police made their way over. When police arrived, Vihil told them everything that had happened to her. Police immediately put the word out to capture David, and they found him with Cindy searching the roads for Vihil. They arrested him on the spot, finally bringing 59-year-old David Parker Ray's 45-year reign of terror to an end. In that clip from our Serial Killers episode on David Parker Ray, his final victim managed to break out of his torture den and run to freedom. Because of V. Hill's heroic escape, Ray was arrested and sentenced to 224 years in prison. He died behind bars in 2002. After his detainment, several of Ray's other surviving victims came forward to tell their story of the torture they suffered at the hands of the toy box killer. In 2011, Cynthia Vigil ardently spoke out about Ray's crimes and urged all women who may have been victimized by him to come forward. She also founded Safe Street New Mexico, a nonprofit that protects vulnerable women living on the street. Today's clips displayed that even in the face of death, victims may be able to outsmart and outlast their captors and escape to safety. Some use stealth, such as Mary Stauffer quietly sliding the hinge out of a door, and others are able to recognize an escape opportunity and capitalize on it, such as Cynthia Vigil spotting the key to her chains. We also saw that these victims feel the physical and psychological effects of their trauma long after their escape. Andy Warhol's developed fear of hospitals likely contributed to his early death, and Captain James Riley experienced prolonged post-traumatic stress disorder. Though victims face a host of psychological traumas, it is possible to recover. Dr. Tina J. Walsh recommends that a healing victim talk about their trauma to try to regain a sense of autonomy. The American Psychiatric Association also acknowledges that different people cope in different ways. Some may heal by talking with their family and friends, and others may find solace in religion or spirituality. Many victims with PTSD may require therapy to confront their intrusive thoughts and flashbacks. And the sooner the victim seeks help, the better the long-term outcome. However long it takes to heal, it's incredible that they made it out alive at all. Thanks for tuning into ParCast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Victims Who Escaped. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode on elderly criminals. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Crimes of Passion, Cults, Hostage, Serial Killers, or Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time.